0: the 1924 Olympics, Eric Liddell of Scotland refused to run in the Olympic trials when the trial came on a Sunday. Uh, This committed Christian, he was a favorite in the race, then sacrificed his opportunity to win a medal, of which he was probably one of the favorites. He did participate in other events, and trials were not on Sunday, and eventually won the gold medal. Returned home to Britain, and he found himself actually a national hero, admired for winning the medal and for maintaining his convictions. But less than a year later, Liddell went to China as a missionary. He taught science at a college in Tientsin for some years. Then he committed himself to the task of going into the villages in the more rural areas for evangelism, traveling many miles in very difficult conditions on foot or by bicycle. When the Japanese invaded China before World War II, they captured Liddell and sent him into a prison camp in August 1943. Over 1,800 prisoners were packed very tightly into a tiny facility, and he was called upon in many ways to meet the physical and spiritual needs of that camp. He organized athletic meets uh, based on his history of track and He taught hymns and led Bible studies. And on April 21st, 1945, one month before that prison camp was liberated by the Allies, Eric Liddell died of a brain tumor. Of course, the events of his life, uh, to a limited point, have been made into a movie, Chariots of Fire, which many of you are familiar with. But Eric Liddell consistently organized his life Around his commitment to serve Christ. He could have remained in Britain and enjoyed a claim and a relatively easy life, even during World War II, as a national hero. He could have enjoyed the relatively peaceful task of teaching in the, in the Chinese college. He could have left China before Japan invaded. But each time he followed the priority he had set as a young man. He chose to follow the will of God and have his life revolve around Christ and the will of God rather than attaching the will of God to his life here and there. When we come to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has penned this chapter here in Hebrews 3, to warn professing believers who do not have their priorities right. They do not have their priorities straight. Having made a commitment to Christ, they're considered, considering returning to the empty rituals of Judaism, the Moses Law. They thought highly of Moses as the founding figure of Judaism. But Jesus was superior to Moses. Moses. And verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 compare and contrast Jesus and Moses. Not a negative thing is said about Moses, but Jesus' superiority is highlighted. Both have been faithful to God's plan for them in verse 1 and 2. Moses was presented as God's servant, working in God's house as people for God's people. And verse 5. But Jesus has fulfilled a higher calling, and as God's Son, He stands over the house. Jesus is superior even to Moses, the giver of the law. And so what I want to do this morning is first of all start out by giving you a little bit of a big picture and context. It's been a while since we've been in Hebrews, a couple months here. And we finished chapter 2 last time, where um, uh, in chapter 1... The writer of Hebrews exalts Jesus as God. Jesus' deity. In chapter 2, he shows that contrary to what some may think that Jesus as man diminishes His glory, Jesus in His full humanity, as well as His full deity, Jesus in His full humanity adds a dimension. Adds another, another facet to His glory. That Jesus in His humanity can understand the human situation. That he came and lived in a broken, fallen world under the curse and did this all without sin. So that, the writer says at the end of chapter uh, 2, verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to secure, deliver them that are tempted. It actually adds a facet to Jesus' glory. If we can even imagine that, to be human. And so he picks up this theme as high priest in chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, verse 1 and chapter four, verse fourteen, is a section that I'm going to title "Keep Believing." We're going to have three, three sermons from this from this section, uh, "Keep Believing," because in f- chapter three, verse one, the writer says, "Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus." Now go to chapter four and verse fourteen. These are kind of the bookends here of this section. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. This is a section here. After verses 1-6 through of chapter 3, then chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, serves as a warning passage. It is a flashing yellow light. Wake up! Wake up! You can see this in Chapter 3, and verse 11, where he talks about a concept of the rest of God. The rest of God. Entering into God's rest. In chapter 3, verse 11, he uses Israel as an example. He says, So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And he quotes from Psalm 95 about where Israel was, was, was ready there on the verge to enter the promised land. And enter into what the writer uh, pictures as a, as a spiritual rest in the promised land. And they draw back to say, wait a minute. Yeah, the land's good. Yeah, it has this. Yeah, it has that. But there's this too. We've got to fight for it. And they're bigger than us. And there's all kinds of obstacles. And they lacked faith. In fact, it was unbelief. The writer here in Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95 and says, They shall not enter my rest. You know the story. Forty years of wilderness wanderings. Until that whole generation was gone. Except for the, two, the ones who were faithful. Joshua and Caleb and their families. It picks up again in verse 18 of chapter 3. And to whom swear ye that they should not enter his rest, but to them that believe not. So it come, again, the idea of faith. Believing what God has said, his word, and entering into God's rest intersect here in this, in this passage. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's his exhortation. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left, of us, left, of, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come shorted, short to it. So he brings that, uh, that story of Israel into application. He says, hey, The same principles can happen to you today. Lack of unbelief. And then verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn my wrath. If they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 5 of chapter 4. And in this place again, if, if they shall enter into my rest... Verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So he brings uh, chapter 3 is this entry point into this concept of the rest of God. You're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? What's he talking about? Well, that's what we're going to get into here in the next few weeks. Here, uh, But it serves as a warning based on the experience of Israel and how they turn back from God's promises of rest because of their unbelief. And he draws the application and says, so if you, the audience, you, the people, listening to this book of Hebrews being read, if you turn away from the promises of God in Christ, you'll be like Israel and not enter the rest of God. Keep believing. Keep believing. Believing, chapter 3 and verse 6. If, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end? This is the doctrine of Christ, Christian perseverance. Uh, uh, that, that those who are Christ uh, continue. They're not like the rocky soil. They're not like this, the, the, the seed that's planted among the thorns but they are planted in good ground, their hearts are good soil, and they continue and they bear fruit. Mark chapter 4. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. He warns them, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. He's saying it's not how you finish. Or start, it's how you finish. It's how you finish. That's so what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. And that's what he says in chapter 4, verse 11. And then he gives us the promises of God, the fuel for continuing in the Christian life. Verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, on the basis of that, hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But has therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, specifically in times of wavering. Faith needing strengthening. So let's get into the passage here this morning, chapter 3, verse 1. He starts off. Wherefore, holy brethren. Now they have been made holy because in chapter 2, Jesus has brought them to God. And verse, chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it became Him by whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory. And it talks about how He is standing in the congregation of God, He's is standing in the midst of those who are redeemed, and He calls them His brethren. His brother. And now, in chapter 3 and verse 1, the writer says, that's you, holy brethren. Your brothers brought together in Christ. He says, wherefore, holy brothers? And then he says, partakers of the heavenly calling. You guys share, in other words, a summons from the king. Now imagine you lived under in a monarchy, and you, a peasant, got a summons from the king to go meet him at such and such a date. You'd listen to that, wouldn't you? You would do whatever is necessary to obey that summons, to get to your meeting with the king. And that's kind of a little bit of a picture, a microcosm of the Christian life. God has given us a calling or to walk worthy of the calling that he's given us. And the point of the calling is that if God has, has called us to walk in Him, then we're going to do whatever it takes to get to the end of that calling. He says, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. What is He saying for us this morning? He's telling us, first of all, Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. That word "consider" is a word that's used in other places of, a, of an astronomer. Uh, when an astronomer goes out at night and they look at the stars, they're trying to size it up, aren't they? Um, they are. They are. They are trying to piece together. They're trying. They're contemplating it. They're trying to put it all together. Um, And that word is used of an astronomer contemplating stars. Consider the apostle. Size him up. Understand who he is, what he's accomplished. Get it together about Jesus. You know, sometimes we can spend so much time focusing on our problems and our weaknesses and our shortcomings that we do not think about what we should be thinking of, the sufficiency of Jesus. And that is not to say that we shouldn't think about the ways we fall short. That's why we're told to repent, right? But we should think far more about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That would do so much for, for the problems that you and I rack our brains with when He says, focus on Jesus. Consider him. Now, how does he describe him? He says, first of all, consider the apostle. And high priest, saying that Jesus Christ is an apostle, I thought there were twelve apostles. Well, that word apostle simply means the one sent forth, sent forth. Jesus was sent by God the Father to the earth through the virgin birth, right? He was the one sent, and if there's an apostle, Jesus Christ is the ultimate apostle, is he not? He's the one ultimately sent from God. So he's the apostle, and he also described as the high priest of our profession. Well, what does that mean? Well, the high priest was the one who in Israel's, uh, in Israel's uh, economy uh, and, 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 and age dispensation uh, would go and offer the sacrifices for the Israelites and specifically on the Day of Atonement one, one time a year he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. He would be the one who would represent God to the people as he would teach the people the law of God, and he would be the one who would also represent the people on the basis of that blood sacrifice to God. He's a representative. So the writer here is telling us to focus on Jesus, the one sent forth and the one who is our representative, and so focus on Jesus as the faithful representative. If you've ever had any dealings with lawyers and you've had to have somebody represent you, There'll probably be some, 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 some stories here of how that didn't work out so well, perhaps. I'm sure there's stories of success, but lawyers get a bad rap sometimes, and some of that's because some of them deserve it, right? Any lawyers in here? Um, this is a faithful representative. He faithfully, perfectly... You think of the high priest in Israel and their, their failings, right? Eli and others... <clears throat> this is the faithful representative. He faithfully represented uh, God to the people and the people to God through himself. His sacrifice. Because it was a perfect sacrifice. And that's where the writer's going with this throughout the whole book. That's the string he's trying to pull here. Alright? So, G- focus on Jesus as the faithful representative. Secondly, focus on Jesus here as the one who is the foremost Builder, Look what he says in verse 2. Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, faithful to his father, the one who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So he's bringing in a comparison here of, of, of Moses. Now, to you and I, we, looking back on the Old Testament and the New Testament, we understand that Jesus was greater than Moses, I think. Um, but if you've grown up in Judaism, Moses is like the George Washington to your, to your, to, to your national story. All right? Um, George Washington in our nation's history is, 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 it was an unbelievable man. A man who I believe, if you look at his letters, really walked with the Lord. Um, <clears throat> he was also a very humble man. He didn't want to serve as president. Wouldn't that be great to be able to elect someone who didn't want to serve as president? <laughs> Let's all vote for that guy, right?
1: <clears throat> um,
0: he's, he, was, he was noble, very noble in many ways. And in our nation's history, and probably rightly so, we, we have spilled a lot of ink about the nobility of, of George Washington. He's a national hero, is he not? Yeah. That's kind of how Moses was in Israel's history. And now imagine somebody telling you that um, there's a leader who's far better than George Washington in our nation's history. Jesus is far better than Moses. You can imagine the pushback. But that guy, is a little peasant carpenter in Nazareth. And he ended up dying by the Roman government for rebelling against them. That well, wasn't how it went. But you can imagine the pushback, right? And so, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus was faithful to him that appointed him, and he never degrades Moses. We know Moses' failures, right? And we, as we know the story. But he says, as Moses also is faithful in all his house, the house that Moses was to serve over, the people of God of Israel, Moses was faithful in that. But, verse 3 says... For this man was counted worthy, speaking of Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses in this way, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. What's he saying here? Well, if you go and see a beautiful structure, it's one thing to say, wow, that's an amazing building. the the Rockefeller Center or the Empire State Building or the Space Needle or whatever it is, those are amazing buildings. But then you scratch your head and think, well, wow, who designed that? The person that designed it was the architect who planned it, who then uh, organized the construction and saw it completed to finish. That person is... A little bit more important than the building, right? The building is just the product. And so that's the, the, the writer of Hebrews' argument here, is that he, Jesus is the one who built the house. Moses served in the house. Moses served God's people, the house being God's people. But Jesus was the one who planned it and built it. Look at verse 4. For every house is builded by some man... But he that built all things is God. And this, by the way, is, a, is, a, is, a, is another proof of Jesus' deity. Because he says Jesus is the builder. And here he says the one who built it is God. Jesus is God. Interesting here. So what's his point? <clears throat> well, what is, what is fascinating here? is that phrase in verse 2 that says, as also Moses was faithful in all his house, is a quote from the book of Numbers. And I'd like you to go with me to Numbers chapter 12, please, to understand the the, the context of this statement. It really helps us understand a little bit more about Jesus, the contrast between Moses. Numbers chapter 12. That comes in the story of Israel when... They are in the wilderness. Which is going to set up the stage for the next scene there in chapter 3, verses 7 to 19 when they're rebelling against Moses. And it deals with Aaron and Miriam's, Moses' brother and sister. They're challenging Moses. They're challenging Moses. And in verse 1 of Numbers 7 and 12, they criticize him for marrying a Cushite woman. In verse 1. And they use that to say, well... Your authority as a prophet of God, someone who tells us what God has said, uh, is, is, is should be should be negated, it shouldn't count. And they challenge his authority as a prophet because they say in verse two, the Lord has spoken through me, Aaron and Miriam, just as much as just as, just as though He's spoken to, uh, through, through you. And in response to their challenge. God declares that when He speaks to other prophets in dreams, He speaks to other prophets in dreams. But when He speaks to Moses, He has spoken face to face with Moses. That's significant. Moses, in chapter 12, verses 6-8, through 8, had seen the glory of the Lord. And Moses doesn't defend himself, but God defends Moses. And uh, Moses, um, Certainly, um, verse 3 describes. here, Moses doesn't try to fight back. Numbers says that Moses is very humble or meek. So it was God who heard these challenges, and He responds, and He vindicates Moses. And it's in the middle of this, this vindication that God says, My servant Moses is faithful in all his house, Miriam and Aaron. He's faithful. Don't mess with him. And then there's other passages in Scripture like Deuteronomy 34, 10-12. You don't have to turn there, but it shows that Moses had an authority over Israel that was unparalleled. He was God's prophet. Not just because of signs and wonders that were worked through him, Deuteronomy 34, 11, but he had an amazing intimacy with God. He spoke face to face with God. And he saw His glory. So back in Hebrews chapter 3, When the writer says Moses was faithful in all his house, he's quoting from that passage to remind them. Remember Moses? God put him up pretty high, right? God put him up pretty high. And Deuteronomy 34.10 said, Never since would there be another prophet in Israel like Moses. Well, what's the point? What's the point? Well, the point is this. Jesus is the builder. He's not just a servant in the house. And Jesus was not somebody who uh, not only spoke face-to-face with God His Father, but Jesus was somebody who did not see God's glory. Jesus was God's glory. Jesus is the very glory of God His Father. That's what He said in chapter 1, verses 1-4. through And so He's the foremost builder. Thirdly, He is the full Son of God. The full Son of God. Back in Hebrews 3 and verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house. Moses was a servant in the house. Christ was a son. In the house, the very Son of God. And there's a difference in relationship between the the owner of the house, the Father of God, and one who serves as a servant, and one who is the Son of God. There's There's a significant difference. But Christ is a Son over his own house. So he's the full son. So this is the contrast here between Moses, who saw the Lord's glory, and Jesus, who as son is the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews 1 3. And, by his, his, uh, his, and, 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 and in chapter 2, verse 9, he is the one who is exalted and crowned with glory and honor. Something never said about Moses. So they're pushed back here about Moses. That's our national hero here. The writer says, here's how Jesus supersedes Moses. Okay, So follow the argument with me here. So he is the faithful representative as the apostle, high priest, the faithful one. He's the foremost builder. He built the house. He wasn't just serving in the house. And he's the full son of God. Why do we need to understand that? Because of the rest of verse 6. And this is, this is, this is, the, this is the point here. Because of all this, the writer tells the Hebrews... Fulfill your purpose. Pursue. Follow hard. Don't quit. Don't waver in unbelief. Carry on. Verse 6. Look at Christ has a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end? So his point is here, fulfill your purpose. Fulfill your purpose. How do we fulfill our purpose? Well, look what he says here. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence, the confidence. That's an important word here. What he's saying is cling, treasure, highly value Christ. Christ is our confidence on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We we fulfill our purpose by moving in closer to Christ. We draw near to Christ. He draws near to us. We move in. We treasure Christ. Look how he uses this word confidence in chapter 4. Verse 14-16 through Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, that's confidence, come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, there is a direct correlation between somebody who is wavering in unbelief and the very uh, pressing need for them right then, pressed into the throne of grace for help. So when the writer here says uh, in verse 6, if we hold fast the confidence, he's reminding them that their, their resource for not wavering, for holding fast, is going to the throne of grace. In other words, prayer. Like we've been talking about. Jesus Christ. Their confidence that... That the word for confidence in the original language is in verse 16. It's in chapter 10 and verse 19 and 10 and verse 35. And in each case, it's an exhortation. And in usage in the New Testament, it's used with speaking. Confidence with speaking. Specifically, our prayers to the Lord. Speaking freely and openly with sins forgiven, consciences cleansed with God in prayer. So we move, we fill our purpose by moving nearer to the Lord in prayer. Secondly, he says in verse 6, If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. Rejoicing of the hope. That word rejoicing is the word for boasting. Boasting. What is your reason for boasting as a Christian? Romans 3, Paul says it's nothing about you. He says the only grounds for our boasting is Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, boasting only in the cross. Boasting only in the cross. Exalting in the cross. That is our only boast. As saved sinners, we have nothing to brag about about ourselves. Because we did nothing to secure our salvation. And the writer of Hebrews says, on the, Your grounds for boasting is Christ. Hold fast. Hold fast the confidence and the boasting of the hope. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. Hold fast. Walk on to that, is what he's saying. Uh, um, uh, uh, fasten yourself to that for lack of a better word mount yourself to that rock and foundation bolt yourself to it the rejoicing of your hope what is your only hope in life and death the old catechism said Jesus Jesus is my only hope in life and death the Lord is my shepherd I shall not lack anything Lock on to the grounds of your boasting. Hold fast to your boast by holding firm to what God has done for you in Christ. And thirdly, how do we fulfill our purpose here based on who Jesus is and our focus on Him? We maintain it. We maintain it. We never arrive. We push. We strive. This is warfare. We maintain it. We hold fast, He says. Hold fast, the rejoicing of the hope, firm until the end. We can't let go. Does God have us uh, in eternal security uh, in His his everlasting arms? Absolutely. Can anyone plug us out, anyone who is a follower of Christ, uh, who has been regenerated, uh, out of the Father's hand? No. Can a regenerated heart become dead again? No. But on the human side, the means of grace is that we hold fast. That doesn't mean we coast in Christianity. I like how uh, Warren Wearsby says it uh, about this passage. He says, The writer is not suggesting that we as Christians must keep ourselves saved. This would contradict the major theme of the book, which is the finished work of Christ and His heavenly ministry guaranteeing our eternal salvation. Hebrews 7.14 and following. Rather, the writer is affirming that those who hold fast their confidence and hope are proving that they are truly born again. And here's what we need to understand, folks. Continuing in the Christian life is the test of reality. Continuing in the Christian life is the test of reality. Jesus says in Mark 4, some may make a fair showing at first, like the seed in the rocky soil, but there's only one good ground that produces fruit. We have everything to gain according to this text here in Hebrews 3:6 by standing fast and moving forward, and we have everything to lose by slipping back. How many do we know who started well, started well and drifted away? Who ran well, but got entangled with business or pleasures of the world or friendships that slowly pulled them away? Why? This passage tells us part of the answer to that. They did not hold fast the confidence the rejoice of the hope firm until the end. It's that simple. And folks, it doesn't start out all at once. One moment, they're doing fine, and the next moment, they're not. And it's many times a slow fade. It's like your favorite shirt after washing it 50 times in the washer, right? You look at what it was when you bought it from the store out of the package and 50 washes later, it's not the same color, is it? It's faded. It's faded little by little. It's, it's little by little, the color's taken out of it. And that's how it is with people who are not connected with the vine. They have no roots. I can go and cut, cut a sapling there and I can try to plant it in the ground and it will look good for a day, won't it? The next day you're gonna see wilting leaves. It's, it's, like a, it's, 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 it's like the piece of cheese you find when you clean out under your fridge. It's like rubber, right? All dried up and shriveled. Or if you're in my stage of life, when you clean your vehicle, you find an apple core or another piece of a fruit from one of the kids left, and it's just crispy and dried up. Now, how does this happen? Well, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, That just as we're saved by faith in Christ's work, we're to walk by faith and not our feelings. Sometimes we let our feelings be like the engine on the train that drives us, and faith be the caboose that tags along in the back. But in the Christian life, um, uh, feelings are to be the caboose, and faith is to be uh, the engine. We're to walk by faith and not feelings. The Christian life is not easy. It takes faith-fueled, not passiveness, but effort. It's not like after you get saved, you step on the up-escalator to heaven and just ride it all the way up, right? Is that anyone's experience? No. That wasn't even Christ's experience, was it? No. It's not a joy ride. In this world, it's more like this. Walking up a down escalator. Okay? Kids, if you haven't done that, you need to do that sometime. It's fun. Alright? Walking in this world is more like walking up a down escalator. Um, If you make no effort by faith and you're standing there saying, I'm good, I'm cool, I'm neutral, what's going to happen? You're not neutral you are going down. And folks, if you are not pursuing and pushing toward Christ, you are not neutral. There's no such thing in the Christian life as on the fence. There's no such thing as coasting. You are either going forward or you're going backwards. It's not easy. That's why it takes faith-fueled work. But it is done. It is accomplished by following the One who is still, top of the stairs Jesus Christ walked that same walk 1 Peter 2 tells us to follow in his steps right and he didn't tell us that to just kind of jerk it away and say yeah you were close got it back right no he did that because through faith fueled effort and the grace of God it's possible it happens and many of you are the result of that you, because of your faith in God's promises and not worrying about your feelings, have pressed on, have persevered, and you are not where you once were. You are not where you want to be. You're not at the top yet, but you are not where you once were. Because it's grace-driven effort. It takes faith-fueled effort, but it's done by following one who himself has walked those stairs. He has finished the course. He is at the top. Consider Jesus, remember? Remember? And has reached out his helping hand down that escalator. And he is helping you walk up those stairs. And the helping hand is called his helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. To keep nudging us forward. And so folks, you say, the Christian life is hard. Yeah, that's why it's war, right? If war was easy, it wouldn't be called war, right? Right? And so that's why we got to fight. That's why we, gotta, why we have to kill sin. That's why we have to think, okay, I am dead to sin and the old man, and I'm alive to Christ in righteousness. And that's why we have to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Folks, I don't know where you are in your Christian walk. Uh, if, if you are finding yourself Uh, 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 not as close to the Lord as you were you're not in a good situation if you have found yourself coasting you're not coasting you're deceiving yourself you're heading back down but I can tell you by God's grace you can confess that to the Lord and you can pursue on here's tool number one the word of God Here's tool number two. The prayer for help. If you don't feel like praying, beep, 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 time to pray, right? Here's tool number three. You're going to see that in the rest of chapter three. Exhort one another while it's called today. Lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of your heart. So God has given these means of grace, these tools that help us take the next step on the down escalator. Alright? So when you're faced with temptation this week, here's what you need to think. If I give in, I am standing still on the escalator going down. But by God's great, grace, He has is, he is provided a faith-fueled, grace-driven effort. Perseverance in the Word of God, through prayer, and in the Holy Spirit to push forward through that because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. He has severed the head of the enemy. The enemy still thrashing around him. He thinks he still has his head on, right? He's doing everything he can. He has severed the head of the enemy and he has provided for you one who has conquered the greatest enemy, Jesus Christ, who sits enthroned in the heavens over all, untouchable by sin as your focus.